You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. When I uh, served uh, as a missionary uh, in the Middle East for a few years, um, one of the most uh, fascinating times for me uh, was the season of Ramadan. Now, you, you may not be familiar with Ramadan, and if you're not, um, it's the ninth month uh, on the uh, Islamic calendar. Uh, Muslims believe that Ramadan was the month that, Rah- that Muhammad uh, received his first revelation from the Quran. So because of that, it's the, the holiest day or the holiest month of the year for Muslims. And one of the five pillars of Islam is that Muslims fast all through the month of Ramadan. So they, they fast for, for an entire month. Uh, now, now, you might think to yourself that, that trying to get you know, 1.8 billion Muslims all around the world to all fast together during this month uh, must take a lot of hard work and dedication uh, but let me, as an outsider, as someone who's not a Muslim, uh, let me give you my observations of what I saw when I was overseas during Ramadan. Uh, the, the fast during this month, it, it's actually only required uh, from sun up until sun down, which means that as soon as the sun goes down, you can eat all you want all night long. Uh, and because fasting is required during the day, uh, most grocery stores and restaurants and just businesses in general, uh, they, they reverse their operating hours. Uh, they're closed during the day, but then they're open all night long. So, so people actually spend most of the day sleeping during the time of fasting, uh, and then they come out of their house when they hear the call to prayer go off at sunset uh, when it's time to eat. And uh, at, at the end of Ramadan, uh, there's a holiday, which a lot of Muslims would liken it to almost their version of Christmas. Uh, it's a holiday called uh, Eid al-Futr, uh, and it, it literally translates into English as breakfast day. Uh, it, it, it's a day of nonstop eating and celebrating uh, and breaking fast, uh, even though they've already been eating and celebrating and breaking fast every night all month long. So when I was there and, and witnessed a lot of my Muslim friends uh, going through this season of, of Ramadan, um, it was ironic to me that as a result of a month's worth of fasting, uh, there, there were actually a lot of Muslims who ended up gaining weight during this month. Uh, they would have to make post-Ramadan resolutions to eat healthier and to exercise more, just as Americans do after all of that Thanksgiving turkey and that Christmas ham. Uh, and, and as an outsider, the, the problem I observed with many Muslims during Ramadan um, is an issue of form over function. I mean, this, this isn't all Muslims, but, but many that I knew over there, 
uh, just maintained the, the motions of going through this outward form of fasting, but they lost the intended function that, that fasting was supposed to serve. Uh, and, and in our text today, in the Gospel of Mark, you, you'll, you're going to see that the Pharisees are struggling with a strikingly similar issue. They, they've also maintained the forms of fasting. They've continued on in this tradition, but, but they've completely forgotten the function that it was intended to serve. And Jesus' conversation to, to confront those hollowed traditions, it's going to create conflict as a result. So let me read our text for consideration, and then let's deep dive into this conversation. Mark chapter 2, 18, verses 22. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, that is Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away uh, from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Uh, In this passage, Jesus is asked a question about fasting, but if you you really look at this question, it's about a lot more than just fasting. Uh, This is really a question about uh, compatibility. This question comes as a result of the Pharisees watching Jesus feast with tax collectors and sinners like we read about last week, uh, and, and there's becoming a greater realization that Jesus doesn't really fit in to the established religious system of his day. I mean, he's a rabbi out there feasting when all of the other religious leaders are fasting. And so if you study these verses, you'll come to the conclusion that Jesus doesn't really fit in, but, but that's because he's not supposed to fit in because Christ is not compatible with the world. That should be your conclusion from this conversation that Jesus will have in this text. Christ is not compatible with the world. Uh, he, he never has been and he never will be. So so let's look at this conversation, uh, first at the accusation that Jesus receives, and then at the answer that Jesus gives in response. So so first, let's look at the the accusation, uh, verse 18. Mark writes, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, 
And people came and said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, I don't know if you've ever compared this story here in Mark to Matthew or Luke's account, uh, but it, it's interesting to, to note some of the, the subtle differences between these three stories. Uh, Matthew says that this conversation took place between Jesus and John's disciples. Uh, but Luke, on the other hand, recorded that the conversation happened between Jesus and the Pharisees. But it's here in Mark that recognizes that this conversation was actually from uh, actually between Jesus and people from both the party of, of, of the Pharisees and John's disciples. Pe- people from both parties were coming to Jesus to know why his disciples didn't fast. Uh, some are approaching earnestly, like John's disciples, trying to, to ask a genuine question, why Jesus didn't go along with the status quo, and others from the Pharisees are coming to ask that the same question, but as a means to discredit his integrity. Now, in a moment, we'll look at the answers that Jesus gives, and you'll see why he and his disciples aren't fasting right now. Uh, but let's first ask why uh, th- this is such an important question to begin with. I mean, why does it matter whether or not Jesus and his disciples were fasting? Uh, Do these accusations against Jesus actually have any validity? Uh, Fasting uh, is an important spiritual discipline in Scripture. Uh, For example, uh, Moses fasted for 40 days when he went up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. Uh, King David fasted shortly after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, Later, Elijah fasted also for 40 days as he was running from Jezebel, uh, actually on his way to that same mountain where Moses received the Ten Commandments. Uh, Ezra fasted on behalf of the Israelites, mourning the the sin of the Israelite exiles. Uh, Queen Esther and the Jews fasted for three days before she entered into the chamber of the king to to plead on behalf of her people. And, And even though Jesus didn't observe all of the fasting that the Pharisees mandated, Uh, He he still highly valued this spiritual discipline. Just like Moses and Elijah, Jesus himself fasted for 40 days in the wilderness as he was preparing for his earthly ministry. So so scripture takes a, a very high view of fasting. And you can honestly just look at the waistlines of many Christians and tell that it, it's not a, da- a discipline that, that we take as seriously as maybe we should. I mean, we, we should, as Christians, be far more committed to this practice than we are. Um, but if you go back to the Old Testament, it, it's still important to note 
uh, that if you read through the Levitical law, the, the law that Moses gave to the people, uh, the law actually only requires fasting uh, one day out of the year. Fasting is only commanded one day out of the year on the Day of Atonement. Uh, it's, it's that day that all of the Israelites were supposed to uh, abstain from any food or drink in order to remember their sins and to grieve over them. So, so there's numerous examples in the Old Testament of fasting, uh, but there's only one day of the year where you were obligated by law to fast. So, so that's kind of the, the picture of this spiritual discipline we see in the Old Testament. Uh, it's largely voluntary, but it's designed to serve a very specific purpose. Individuals either fasted in remorse of sin or in preparation for difficult days ahead. Uh, fasting was either a response uh, to various disruptions that came in life, or it was a remembrance of your ultimate dependence upon the Lord. A, a reminder of your greater spiritual or your, your greater need for spiritual substance even more than just physical nourishment. But if you fast forward to the time of Jesus and the Pharisees, you see that, that everything has changed. The landscape is completely different. Jesus will later uh, depict the, the life of a Pharisee in one of the uh, parables that he taught and in this parable, he actually may have, have well been reflecting back on this conversation that we're, we're studying this morning. Uh, but let me, let me read to you from this parable uh, found in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And, and Jesus talks about how the Pharisees fasted in this day. It says, uh, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, and he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to the house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So that's Jesus's depiction of the average Pharisee in his day. All the Pharisees in Jesus's day fasted twice a week. They fasted every Monday and every Thursday. But God's word and the Levitical law obviously wasn't the source of that tradition. The Levitical law nowhere demanded that kind of fasting. And the, the purpose of their fasts 
weren't in remorse of sin or to show their dependency on the Lord. It was to exalt themselves above the likes of the tax collectors, these very people that that Jesus is now feasting with. And so even as the the accusations are laid against Jesus, you, you see that many in his day have maintained those outward forms of fasting, but at the expense of forgetting its intended function. That they're continuing forward in just hollowed out traditions that, that have no real substance. And so Mark records this conversation and the Lord saw it fit to preserve it in his word for you and I to study because it is equally as easy for, for you and I to, to stumble into this same pitfall of the Pharisees uh, and what they did in Jesus's day. Uh, it, it's easy for you to have a faith that is faith in name only and that has ceased to be functional in any meaningful capacity. Uh, If you're in this room this morning, right now, listening to my voice, you've obviously created the habit or tradition of coming to this Sunday morning gathering, and and that's that's great, but, but let me ask you this. Does your faith, go any deeper than this service. I mean, if, if this single Sunday morning service is the extent of your religion, then your religion has no real substance. You have a faith without feet, just like the Pharisees. Coming to the church, really, it, it should just be the tip of this tiny visible, it's the tiny visible tip of an incredibly deep iceberg that should be your relationship with the Lord. There, there are many who wrongly view uh, this, this Sunday morning gathering and this sanctuary is kind of the, the stadium where the Christian life plays out. You know, it's, it's here in this room where, where many think that, that as you worship the Lord, you hear from his word, that, that you think that this is, is, is where all of the action is taking place. But, but let me make it clear that, that this room is not the playing field for your faith. Um, if anything, this building is, is really nothing more than the locker room. This church is just where we take a scheduled break from time to time to gather and strategize and talk about all that is going on out there. I mean, it's here in this locker room where we help one another up when we've been tackled or beat down by our opponents out there. It's here that we rehydrate ourselves so that we're ready to go out there and play another quarter. But it's really the rest of your life that's that stadium where your faith fights the good fight and finishes the race. 
It's in your home, it's in your job, uh, it's with any public interactions that you have with others. Uh, that, that's really where the, the rubber meets the road. And so if you remember nothing else this morning, don't forget that the Pharisees fasted religiously and most of them still went to hell. And you can come to church every Sunday morning Every time the doors are open and you can do the same, you have to have a faith that is more than just a facade. You have to have a faith that is rooted in deeper soil than just tradition. It has to go beyond the walls of this sanctuary uh, it has to be rooted in the gospel of Christ, and its branches have to spread to every area of your life. So that's, that's the, the accusation that, that Jesus receives. Uh, let's, let's move on and talk about the, the answer that Jesus gives in response. Uh, he actually responds with two answers in the form of analogies, uh, and then he gives a rhetorical question. So I want to break this down for a bit. Uh, we're, we're going to look at the, the two analogies found in verses 21 and 22, and then we're going to go back to verses 19 and 20, and we'll look at that question. So, so the first analogy that Jesus gives here as an answer, uh, it, it's regarding unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Look at verse 21. It says, no one serves a uh, sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Uh, anyone who has ever used a washer before knows that new clothes can shrink. I make this mistake all the time. Uh, I buy a shirt uh, from the store, and I don't pay attention to what the fabric is, and I don't pay attention to the washing instructions. So I wear the shirt once, I wash it wrong, and it shrinks, and then it no longer fits. And then I'm really just left confused trying to figure out if my shirt shrank or if I'm just getting fatter. And honestly, sometimes it's probably both. Uh, but, but Jesus is saying here that, that everyone knows that, that new clothes shrink, new fabric can shrink. And so you don't put a new patch on an old shirt because you're only going to make the problem worse. When the fabric on the new patch shrinks, it's only going to serve to tear an even larger hole in the shirt. And, and so Jesus is saying... That, that he didn't come to patch up the broken religious system of the Pharisees. Their traditions are like an old, worn-out garment. They're torn, they're tattered, they're like filthy rags. And, and Jesus didn't come as a simple patch. He is entirely incompatible to their worldview trying to sow Jesus into their ripped and fraying faith uh, will only serve to exasperate the problem. 
That, that's the, the first analogy. Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees is like putting unshrunk cloth on an old garment. The second analogy is in verse 22. Uh, Jesus here compares himself to new wine and an old wineskin. He says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, as Baptists, we, we don't always understand this second analogy as well because we, we don't often like to talk about alcohol. Uh, but when wine is made, if you didn't know this, uh, a byproduct of that fermentation process is carbon dioxide. So if you put newly fermented wine into an old wineskin that is weak and hardened and has lost its elasticity, that CO2 buildup will, will cause the skin to inflate and eventually crack and rupture. So, so the point of the second analogy is actually the same as the first. Jesus is incompatible with the worldview of the Pharisees. Their, their hearts are dried and calloused, and putting that fresh wine that is Christ will only serve to rupture their worldview. So, so those are the, the two analogies found in Mark. Uh, if you'd like a uh, bonus analogy, uh, Luke in his gospel uh, records a, a third parable that Jesus also gives in this conversation. Uh, Luke adds in uh, Luke 5 verse 39, uh, he says, And no one after drinking old wineskin, or, or sorry, no one after drinking old wine wishes for new. For he says, the old is enough. So first parable, you know, Jesus says that trying to, to mix his worldview to that of the Pharisees is like trying to put a new patch on an old garment. And the second parable is he is like putting new wine in an old wineskin. And then the third that Luke adds says that, Jesus is like trying to offer someone new wine when they're already drunk on the old. Now, I have never been drunk in my life, but I'm told that, that when you drink, your inhibitions lessen. Uh, you may remember this when Jesus was at the, the wedding in Cana. Uh, you, you may remember what happened when Jesus turned the water into wine. Uh, they, the uh, host came up to Jesus and said to him that everyone knows that you, you serve the good wine first, and it's only after everybody has had a lot of wine to drink that you then bring out the cheap stuff, uh, because they're too drunk to discern the difference in the taste. Or even if they can, they're, they're too drunk to know the difference. 
Jesus is accusing the Pharisees here of being spiritual drunkards. He says that they're so inebriated in their own laws and traditions that they can no longer discern the fresh wine that the, the gospel offers is far superior uh, to, to their own traditions in every way. So we've, we've looked at all of these analogies, these three analogies that Jesus offers uh, to, and and they're, they're all similar to one another, uh, and, and they're really all driving home at the same, to the same point. Jesus is communicating that he is more than just a slightly modified or incrementally improved version of the Pharisees' faith. He comes as a complete replacement to their recalcitrant teachings. He didn't come to offer some helpful insights as the latest celebrity rabbi. Uh, He's not here as the latest fad. He he comes as an entirely new worldview that will turn the world of his students upside down as they are transformed by his teaching. Um, I, I don't know how many of you uh, like or use smartphones, uh, but it, it's always frustrating to me every year when Apple and Google always uh, market their flagship phones as the, the latest, greatest, newest revolutionary devices every year. Because even before they announce them, you already know inevitably what they're going to be. They're just going to be like last year's model. They're going to be slightly faster uh, with a slightly longer battery. And, and that screen's just going to have a few more pixels crammed into the display. But, but that's not Jesus. He, he's not an incrementally improved model of the faith and the worldview that you already have. He's not a patch intended to cover over a few of your blemishes. Uh, you, you don't get the benefit of the new wine that he offers while hanging on to the dry and cracked wineskin that is your heart. Uh, and, and if you can look at the teachings of Christ in God's word, and you can honestly say to yourself that they don't really look that different from other teachings and other worldviews, that, that all worldviews really just have the same intention of making you a more moral person. If you can honestly do that, then Jesus says that you are spiritually drunk. You're inebriated and have lost your discerning taste to see that the wine that Christ offers is far superior to anything that the world can produce. Jesus is incompatible with the world. And you, you can't just add him to your growing collection setting on your spiritual shelf. He, he may be inclusive of all men and women from every nationality, every race, from all walks of life, but he is entirely exclusive in regards to his devotion and commitment. Uh, he, he is like oil in a bottle of water. 
He, he will not mix with any other religion, any other philosophy, or any other teaching. If you want Christ to come into your life, you have to realize that, that he comes as a standalone, complete package that must replace everything that is already in your life. So, so Jesus offers all of those analogies to, to show that, that he didn't just come as an addition to the traditions of the Pharisees. He, he's an entirely new worldview that will turn the, the world of his students upside down. Uh, now, now, just briefly, now that we have understood these announcements, these, these analogies, um, let, let's go back to this uh, rhetorical question that Jesus offers to the Pharisees, verses 19 and 20. This question uh, will finally explain why it is that Jesus and his disciples are not fasting. Uh, verse 19 and 20, Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and, they, and then they will fast in that day. So, so Jesus has asked the question, why don't you and your disciples fast? And his answer is another question. Can guests at a wedding fast while the bridegroom is with them? And the answer to that is undoubtedly no. There may come a day after the wedding when fasting would be appropriate, but weddings are occasions for feasting, not fasting. If you walked in to a family member or a friend's wedding and nobody was eating, nobody was drinking, nobody was celebrating, they were all quiet and somber, you would walk away very confused. You would walk away thinking that you had just witnessed a funeral, not a wedding. And more, so more than, than just trying to remind the people and the Pharisees that their, their fasting traditions lacked substance, Jesus is using this conversation to, uh, to point others to the reality that, that now is the time to celebrate because God, who is the bridegroom, has finally arrived on earth to be with his bride. And that occasion calls for an abundance of food and drink, not the absence. I said earlier that the Levitical law only mandated one day of fasting out of the entire year. And that's true. Uh, but during Israel's exile in Babylon, uh, the Israelites established a, a number of additional fast days uh, in order to grieve over the sins of their forefathers. Uh, and in the book of Zechariah, uh, the Lord offers to his people a, a foreshadowing of the reality that those fasts that they have established won't last forever. Let me read to you Zechariah 8, 19. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth 
shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Though the Israelites were, were taken into captivity because of their sin, and though to show remorse over that sin, they, they grieve through the discipline of fasting, Zechariah predicted that one day their fasting would turn into feasting, and there would be seasons of joy and gladness. And with Christ's arrival on earth, that day has come. And so so the disciples don't fast because they are the bride and their bridegroom has arrived. And that arrival should be marked by a season of joy and gladness as they feast together with their Savior, knowing that his death and his resurrection will soon offer them hope. And church, that that is your hope, and that is my hope today. Looking at the the accusation here that Jesus received and this answer that he gave in response, you you and I can see that that, that Christ is not compatible with the world, and that that he did not come to to slightly alter or, or simply add to the traditions of the faith, uh, he, he came to completely replace their, their bankrupt system with a new yoke that is easy and a new burden that is light. And so while you and I continue to live in a broken and sinful world, there, there should be seasons of fasting for you and I. If you're a committed Christian, you, you should set aside seasons of your life to fast in remorse of your sin or in remembrance of your dependency upon uh, the Lord. And you you should uh, take that as an opportunity to to remember your need for his spiritual nourishment, even over your your own uh, physical sustenance. But, But as you fast in this life, know that there will one day be feasting in the life to come. Just as Jesus' disciples feasted with Jesus, you too will be invited to celebrate with him one day as well. Uh, John records this in a vision that he saw in Revelation chapter 19, and he he reminds uh, you that, that all of the followers of Christ, everybody who has submitted to him as Lord and Savior, they will all one day be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there will be no more fasting there. It will inaugurate not just a temporary feasting time, but an eternal season of feasting and gladness and joy. So let me pray.